Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas Hello and welcome to another of our little trademark podcasts. My name is Steph on the New Line. I'm joined once again today by good friend, colleague, comrade and researcher Connor McCabe. We had a podcast recently on the actual collected works of James Connolly that Connor's currently working on and it got a really good response and a lot of interest in it and people asking when the book's going to be published. Connor, that'll be a while, won't it? It will, but hopefully kind of first volume... End of next year. Brilliant. So looking forward to that. We also mentioned, though, on that podcast that the work that Connor's doing on James Connolly's um, Lost Writings um, comes out of another project that we kind of began a couple of years ago. I don't know if it was even, it might have been pre COVID, I can't remember now. Mm. Of course, I've done absolutely fuck all on the project and Connor's done everything, but I'm happy to have Connor here with us today to talk about all the work he's been doing. And that project was uh, an anthology of Irish socialist and Marxist writings, which is a fairly big task on no harm to you the idea that of, of to collect a body of work that you're going to sort of broadly define as irish marxist thinking and writing and it's a it's a tough one isn't it because i mean how do you define a marxist writing in an irish context and how how far do you go back historically what was your what were your terms of reference for that or what was your thinking and how have you found that found it challenging yeah um like i think the james Connolly kind of project it comes out of this one actually because mm. um you know like James Connolly, he is interesting in and of himself that, you know, he's a, you know, he's just a huge kind of figure. But I would not be so interested in doing his works if I couldn't contextualize his writings in something more deeper. Um, so where I think it's, it's important is that where kind of Connolly usually gets seen is in terms of British uh, socialism, the British kind of trade union movement. Mm-hmm. And that's, I don't think that's where he, he really belongs. In that, in his Irish writings, you know, he's a he's a big figure in Scottish Marxism anyway. You yeah. know, um, you know, he's found kind of parties over there uh, as well. But in terms of what he brings that is unique to the table, it's that anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, um, anti-colonial Marxism, which Connolly came to um, to his own kind of uh, his own kind of research and somewhat kind of uh, preempting that wave of an anti-colonial kind of Marxism, which really kind of, you know, starts from taking off from the 1920s yeah. onwards. But you root Connolly's tradition, and particularly, as you said, his Irish writings, you root his tradition firmly in Ireland, and that much of his thinking and his writing comes from a specifically Irish tradition that you've dated back to that, that mid-19th century Chartist period, which we'll talk about in a minute. But also, you've gone further back again, haven't you, in terms of your in terms of this anthology, and you've, you've got, you've got you know, writings from the late, late 18th century, which is even pre, if you like, those early sort of utopian socialist writings, haven't you? So why did you take it that far back? I mean, one of the ones there where I was reading about it, you're, talk, you're talking about the white boys and the levellers and the, you know, and that you're, you're going right back there to like the agricultural conflicts of the 18th century. So why did you why did you bring the Marxist anthology that far back to the 1760s? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because, I mean, like the first thing anyone is quite rightly going to ask you is what's your terms mm. Of reference here, and for me, it goes back to um, the mode of like production 
and relations of production that arise out of that. So from the 17th century onwards, there's a change in the mode of, of a production in Ireland. It's more kind of capitalist, but it's a, it's a colonial kind of capitalist mm-hmm. kind, of, you know, kind of feel of it. And, and then out of that comes very particular the relations of production, which you see in terms of, of cattle, in terms of, of, kind of agriculture, as well as, as industry. One of the problems, which I think kind of Irish Marxism from the 1950s anyway, has kind of suffered from was looking to Britain and thinking that, that Britain must be the template for what is kind of capitalism. Mm-hmm. Whereas Marxists in the, in the late 19th century up to the 1930s, realized that that kind of agriculture in Ireland was a wholly capitalist venture. Yeah, Ellie Meeks Wood said that really well in one of her books. I love her work. She said that Ireland was like Britain's first structural readjustment program. They were, they were changing the nature of, of agriculture brilliant. in Ireland, you know, and it was a particularly capitalist form of agricultural development. That's a, that's a brilliant line. And, and what I see in the white boys, in, in the Shanavats mm-hmm. and the Caravats and all that kind of stuff is that you're seeing conflict over the use of land yeah. on, on, you know, in like areas. And it's over this kind of new kind of more cattle dominated use of kind of grazing. And there's, um, and there's a clash over that. So for me, what you see when we look at the at the white boys, at the journeymen, and and the combinations that are happening here as well as that, we're seeing flashes of class conflict. And and are those early um, papers you found and, and writings you found, and you listed a few of them here. I'll just read one or two out just for our listeners. Whereas the master basket makers of the city of Dublin, seventeen sixty two. Um, a candid inquiry into the causes and motives of the late riots in the province of Munster in Ireland by the people called White Boys or Levellers. Are they authored documents or are they all anonymous? Have you got the names of the people who wrote these things? See, you know, this is, uh, you know, this one of the problems with, or, or we're kind of going back in so far as that um, these, these kind of class conflicts only really show up in the archives when they're arrested or mm. when there's an actual kind of, uh, you know, in conflict with the state itself. And then what we get is the state's version of it. Yeah. So there are a few where you have um, the trials of the Caravats and the Shanavests where you get some of their words of what we think maybe their words. So it is. So... The further back we go, we have to rely on the state's response. Gotcha. But of course, I mean, those play, that, that was a pre-liberal democratic period as well. So revolutionary times, if these people authored things, they're going to be arrested and fucking sent to Australia or absolutely, picked, absolutely. scouted and yeah, tortured yeah, and fucking yeah, yeah. hung. So. But we do notice that, um, that what they're kind of uh, combining over is over wages, income, rents and, and the use of the land. Mm-hmm. And that's not happening in a vacuum, going back to kind of Ellen Woods, there's a change in the relations of the production on the island, and there's conflict over that. Yeah, and it's and it's that kind of moving to a more kind of capitalist kind of you know kind of venture, and we're seeing the sparks of that. One of our first, one of the first books you have there listed, or writings you have listed, is a course from the fairly well-known writer and activist William Thompson, which you could. Some people have argued he was Ireland's first socialist or first Marxist or pre-Marxist Marxist writer, you want to call it that. And he, I mean, he was an influential writer in his own way. I mean, Connolly himself called him the, the, the first Irish socialist writer. 
and and even Marx quotes William Thompson. And what I didn't know, and I found out because I wanted to do some prep for this podcast, so I didn't say that total dig, but was that he, he coined the term surplus value, which then Marx took on. Was the five facts? Yeah, Mark, apparently William Thompson. Now, whether he defined it in the same way as Marx, I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to do a bit more reading, but so it's clearly a very influential writer. So it's quite clear, obviously, then you have you have William Thompson in in the anthology. Tell us a bit about why you chose him, or maybe what you chose from William Thompson's uh, fairly prodigious output. Yes, I mean, um, the copies writings that are probably kind of well-known now is the ones that are quoted by, by Marx in, in kind of Capital or by kind of Connolly. But he wrote an awful lot more, and there are more, there are short kind of pieces that he's written that are, that are overt calls for class struggle, mm-hmm. where he's telling workers to organise, to like combine, to work to ensure that they get the full value of their labour. And um, and his his work is not just kind of academic; it's also propagandist yeah. a, as well. And it's very much based on there is a clash over over value, over capital and labor. And, and he's saying that labor should get all the value of its work. Now, his kind of solution was like he found kind of solace in the kind of cooperative movement. And that was quite popular there between socialists and what are called. He'd have been linked in Woody intellectuals to the Owenite movement at that time. And very early. much so. And um, like, like, like privately, he would have had some some clashes with Owen, who we thought was a bit more conservative, who was very authoritarian. He believed in one man, one rule mm-hmm. uh, for a fucking co-ops. But Tom's just going, no, everyone had. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a you know it's a fucking collective. So that's where, like, why Thompson is there is not just about his kind of analysis of capital and labor. It's also because he's saying that if you want rights for labor, it is impossible under the present economic system. Yeah. It's impossible. So he's not a kind of reformist. He's not a social democrat. He's saying that we need to change the actual relations and mode of production in order to get some that is yeah, genuinely... Yeah, he's talking about collective ownership of he the means is. of production. Absolutely, absolutely. And, then, and it's owning the full value of your labour. Yeah, so those who don't know William Thompson, go back and read and start. I didn't realise as well when I was doing a bit of prep that he, he left in his will all of his family's estate and his money to the... I don't know if it was to the co-op movement or specifically, or to Rallaheim specifically, that co-op down in Clare. It was to the, it was to the kind of co-op movement. Yeah, yeah. And the typical Irish family, uh, you know, in typical kind of Irish kind of uh, style... His uh, his relatives sued, <laughs> and and most of the money ended up in like law- being spent on like lawyers' fees. <laughs> there you go. Um, the other one we mentioned before, and you included her because obviously when you're doing an anthology, you're, you're wary of having, um, of course, uh, Irish feminist and Irish Marxist writers, women writers, also Irish language writers as well. I know that one of the first you came across. We mentioned her before was um, really interesting character Anna Doyle Wheeler. And you've included a couple of her pieces here, one on the rights of women. Tell me a little bit about Anna Doyle William, why you included her. Well, and did you know about her before? I knew about her just briefly via kind of William Thompson because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she co authored um, a book with kind of Thompson on the rights of like women called Appeal. And um, like she's probably the most well known of the unknowns, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, uh, like the historian but Dolores kind of you know Dooley has done amazing work trying to you know kind of save her and rediscover some of these early writers yes and like you know she's been like working on that for the last kind of 30 years so um 
she is probably the most well known of the unknowns if mm-hmm. that if that makes sense but like but the reason why she is in this kind of in this kind of collection again going back to that thing around um does she speak to the capitalist mode of abduction and the class kind of uh, issues that are there and she most certainly does so she's a feminist but she's not a lean-in feminist. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's saying that you cannot have equal rights for women under the present mode of like, abduction. Going back to that line time and time again, and actually have some... She wrote, like, uh, she, her actual writings are quite... There, aren't, there isn't much of them. There are 16 items overall that are known about, and, and this comes from the Dooley, 10 or letters. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote, like, five, five or six kind of articles and then she she co-authored a book with uh, you know with Kenneth Thompson, but like a a one of her letters uh, she wrote um, as a eulogy to Thompson who passed in in eighteen thirty three. So even though it's about how, uh, what a great person he was, she uses it to give her own kind of take on on the whole thing. And she says that you know she uses lines like we can no longer. Uh, persist in our ruinous, antisocial and vicious course of competition and that a physical change in the condition of man must precede the moral change which every sympathizing mind are, you know, wishes to see kind of affected. Time and time again, she goes back to we need to change the social character of the economy. And again, she found kind of, uh, you know, she would see this as a kind of socialist and cooperative feminist mm-hmm. one. Um, she, she very much says that you cannot have, well, what we would say now is that you can't have socialism, the great kind of feminism and kind of feminism. Yeah. And kind of feminism, you know, they were out of really so, interesting. She is a character, but she, she's kind of firmly rooted, I suppose, historically in that kind of utopian socialist period of, you know, Saint Simon and, Robert Owen and William Thompson, but very much so. You know, but then after was, that, you're moving into that, and that's a really interesting bit here that I'm interested in, particularly about identifying um, an anthology of Irish Marxist writing, because you're moving then into the Chartist period, the mid 19th century, which you know, which is about a mass movement about democracy, about universal suffrage, and all those other things. Chartist forefront, of course, we know with Fergus O'Connor and other people, there was a huge, heavy Irish influence in the Chartist movement. But it is very, and you've identified a few writers here, which we'll talk about who were kind of Irish Chartists, and that's what they were, and many of them worked in Ireland, some, of course, moved and worked mainly in Britain. But it seemed to me to be a very British movement, Chartism. And was it linked to repeal? Was it linked to the revolutionary period, 1848? What were the... Or was it were they in parallel with each other? Because you could also argue, and maybe a bit, you know, that, that some of those early Marxist writers you've identified came from that Anglo-Irish tradition in Ireland, so they naturally get drawn into what's happening in Britain, mm-hmm. And therefore, there isn't an Irish analysis necessarily of, of capitalism in Ireland. Would that be fair, or what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, um, at this stage, like where I think we start to see a distinct analysis of the Irish conditions, because Wheeler and Thompson are talking. It seems to be very much in terms of the UK. It's very much. The, I don't see much. I haven't come across anything in the Wheeler's writings where she says that Ireland must break away from Britain mm, to yeah. way forward. Where you do see that is in people like Patrick O'Higgins. Yeah, he's an interesting character. Tell me more about him. Yeah, again, um, like this is down, like it's worked on by uh, Christine Keneally, who be, could be well known as, as a famine historian. Mm-hmm. You know, again, just a brilliant historian. And she's she's really helped to, to kind of bring him back uh, onto the 
of Blackman to the stage. Um, he was a Dublin, he was a Dublin kind of businessman, um, but he was linked with the repeal movement and then with kind of chartism as well. And his thing was that he he linked them both. So um, he was a he was an early supporter of of Daniel O'Connell, but kind of fell out with him as a lot <laughs> of radicals did in the eighteen thirties when you know you know when O'Connell as soon as he gets into Parliament drops all of his promises and yeah. actually limits actually takes cuts the franchise um, for Catholic emancipation. Um, and did Patrick O'Higgins writings and analysis did that have a particularly Irish was it as you said to me previously Connor was it part of the idea of Commonwealth so they they'd kind of already accepted that Ireland's position was or should be in some sort of working man's Commonwealth or Britain and Ireland were they were kind of rooted in that tradition do you think rather than as you said before some sort of idea of Irish republicanism and the breakaway and the you know the 1848 and and the the Young Islanders and so on. Is this a separate tradition? It's a it's a separate one because, um, like, what kind of O'Higgins? And again, going back to this is working off what has kind of survived. Yeah, of course. So yeah. we're always dealing with scraps here. But what kind of O'Higgins kind of wrote about? He was very very clear. You know, he says that um, that you cannot have kind of repeal without changing the democratic nature of the state itself. So um, he doesn't say that Britain and the UK. Must become kind of you know kind of democratic. Mm-hmm. He's saying that no Ireland has to break away from Britain. Again, this is in the eighteen forties. It's still in kind of living memory when Ireland had its own parliament. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you know, like this would be like them talking about kind of repeal is a bit like us talking about um, nineteen eighty three. Yeah, it's the same kind of distance away. Like you know, so it's about the time of, of the miner strike. That's that's what we're dealing with here, or the Falklands War. That's what we're dealing with here in terms of the memory of it. And, and he's saying that this has been a disaster for us. We have to break away. Another thing is that Ireland's population at this time is is eight and a half million. If it, like taking that as a ratio of the the English population, that would like Ireland now having twenty four million people. That mm. you know in relation to what's in Britain at the yeah, moment. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So, and um, what he's saying is that we are. It's a mature kind of country. We have different resources. We need to break they were Britain, but again, just quote O'Higgins from like 1842, and, and I think this might this might sound sound kind of familiar. He says that if that repeal of the Act of Union would in truth be of little benefit to Ireland if it merely threw power into the hands of men who would take the first opportunity of selling the country again. Now anyone who knows yeah. James Connolly, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you just change the paint the dig on the post boxes. In the same letter, and this is uh, or the same pamphlet, it says that the poor man's cause is the same everywhere. Labour can never can command attention or procure redress until it be armed with the elective franchise. Urge then your mighty leader, and this is O'Connell, to lead you to the field where four millions are battling for a people's right, and four millions are the charters. He's talking about uh, the repeal movement. Which is massive. Which mm. is massive in terms of the UK. Yeah. Right. Uh, he says that if this links up with Chartism, we could have some genuine change. But again, he's not saying that it's genuine change in the Commons. He's saying no, it's genuine change. But Ireland still, it's still going to break away. So it's a, it's an Irish kind of nationalism, but it's a nationalism that is linked, that links to nationalism to what was known as the social question. 
Mm-hmm. And you see this phrase used time and time and time again. So O'Connell wanted to say that, no, we'll deal with the social question after yeah. we get this. Labour can wait. Exactly. <laughs> and O'Higgins, he's saying, no, because, no, this has to be done at the same time. Because, and you know, so we get this. That's where I start to see in the 1840s that link with what we now see as socialist, kind of socialist republicanism, where yeah. republicanism is linked with the social question, yeah. or just whatever that question may be. And O'Connell hated it. O'Connell actually sent, um, like, there were charters meetings being held in Patrick O'Higgins' house in the, in the 1840s. He lived on North Ann Street on the north side, just off from Smithfield. And O'Connell sent thugs around to, to kind of break up the meeting. The so-called pacifist, yeah. he, he sent in thugs just to break up anything that had to do with Chartism, because O'Connell was horrendously right-wing capitalist. It's interesting, that, isn't it? Because you see that period, and that period you're talking about, and you have the birth, if you like, or the, you see the threads being woven together of, as you said, the social question and republicanism, the idea of needing to break away from Britain, mm-hmm. but also that breakaway has to fundamentally also be a challenge to capital and to imperialism, not just a, not just some sort of anti-colonial thing. And, and often people... And I find this quite happens quite a lot. And if people mistake anti-colonialism for anti-imperialism and what those two things mean, and maybe that's a that's a debate for another day we can get our teeth into. But I mean, after the trauma then of the, of the the Drochil, as they say in Irish, the bad times and Gortamore, the, the famine, it's then really after that period in the early eighteen fifties that you see really strongly that tradition, isn't it, of republican socialism emerging as a distinct tradition of Irish Marxism, if you want to put it that way, or Marxist writings. And the first thing that jumps off your list that you've provided me with here, of course is the, you know, the, the Fenian Proclamation of 1867, which is, in, anyone who hasn't read it recently, you should go back and read it because it's a far more radical proclamation and document than the, the Proclamation of 1916 in many ways. So why, why did you include that? Do you see that as a, a really important period, a really important kind of symbol of, of that new t- political tradition in Ireland? Um, huge so, because, because, you know, because again, you know, it's, it's, it's dealing with the clash over capital and labour. Going back to, do these documents speak to mm. the relations of production on the island. Do they speak to this? If they don't speak to it, then they shouldn't be here. But these documents do. And the Fenian uh, proclamation of 1867 is that it talks about getting rid of property rights. So and it's getting rid of these kind of property rights because they're linked to the capitalist mode of like, production. It's an it's a, it's a extremely kind of radical, even today, it's mm. a radical uh, document. And that even ties into people like Bontair O'Brien, who came beforehand, or, or the Irish Democratic Association, who were more kind of socialist, but it uh, was still linked with Irish, the need for an indigenous Irish legislative mm-hmm. assembly has to be linked with the social question. And that, that symbolism as well, as you said about um, the owners, it matters who the owners are, regardless of what flag mm-hmm. they fly, because they say, my favourite quote from the proclamation is that one, the proclamation claims that their war was against the aristocratic locusts, whether English or Irish. Exactly. And that's, that's the whole point, isn't it? You exactly. Know? And because what we're seeing here as well is that, particularly after the, the famine, when, um, when you have kind of repeal of the corn laws, as well as the kind of clearances, uh, due to the famine, is that the graziers are now there in the ascendancy. Uh, what they wanted was people clear from the land, and they got it through the deaths of millions. Yeah. And um, of millions. And 
which is a process we've seen in capitalism across the globe, of course, for the last 250 years. Very much so. And that's what O'Connell wanted. He was calling for an appeal of the corn laws going back to the 1830s because he wanted the agrarian uh, fields cleared and import mm. corn, yeah. st- stop having iron kind of grown corn and put cattle on and get rid of the people. So where O'Connell kind of comes from is that Fine yeah. Gael, right wing, Fine Gael, Michael Collins, Fine Gael, uh, blue shirt kind of tradition. Like he is steeped in that and there's a fucking statue to him <laughs> on O'Connell Street. No, we'll have in, to do a couple. In, in, there's a man that in, certainly in, needs to be put into the fucking dustbin in history. But then outside of that, you have a different tradition that's saying that we know precisely what these people are like and we're not going to have them ruling us either. Yeah. So they don't want the, what I call kind of compadors. They don't want those grazers, those those fat, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of paunchy Daniel O'Connell's ruling them. He's saying, no, this needs to be a working class Republicanism, yeah, and then and you that move, really comes in in the eighteen in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. Yeah, you move into that period then because that's what, of course, then you you start to see, and you've got them on your list here of the writers that we're more familiar with, I suppose, as modern socialist and Marxist writers. Whether it's you know, the likes of Thomas Brady or Jim Connell or Eleanor Marx, you've got here people who, who wrote specifically about the Irish context, mm. and of course Jim Larkin. But one of the ones that jumped out at me was the the one by Thomas Brady. Um, the historical basis of socialism in Ireland was that a big jump from other writings in the past? Was that very Connollyite in its writings, or how did that how did it weave its way into? It's very Connollyite. It's very much coming from what kind of James Connolly had. I'm not ignoring James Connolly here, but we, oh, just, no, we did no. talk about him a lot in the last podcast. No, sure enough, to... and he's not on the list because it's hard just to find kind of one yeah, of course, piece yeah. for him. Um, if I'm pushed, which I am, I'll probably put the intro to Labour. In our history, because it's he, good, yeah. he just summarizes everything, and it's then good. Every, everything, everything after that, it's just kind of you no know, data. But again, it shows that it's it shows first of all just the influence of of kind of James Connolly mm. because he you know he brings that sharpness. But you have stuff like the program of the Knights of the Plough, and this comes from you know this is me kind of drawing on on work by historians, you know, such as kind of Fintan Lane, who's, who's done incredible work. Mm in this kind of period, really doing that kind of uncovering, you know. And what you get, again, is also speaks to the double, the, the dual uh, tradition in the Irish labour movement. So what you have in the labour movement from the 1830s when it's, when it's made legal is that you still have combinations which are illegal mm-hmm. uh, trade unions. You still have them kind of working away. But then you have a trade union movement that is more or less, like, I'm being maybe a bit uh, simplistic, but it's been like co-opted into the the Daniel Connell, Fine Gael, you know, view of of nationalism. Well, it's a, it's a tradition that's been there a long time, isn't it? It has. <laughs> so what you get from around 1907 until 1923 is that that other, a much smaller but much more radical kind of tradition comes to the fore. And it comes to the fore through Jim Larkin and through kind of James yeah. Connolly. And they're speaking to the people, to those kind of combinations of the 1760s, 1780s. And they're speaking to it, it's those kind of writers like kind of uh, like Patrick O'Higgins, mm-hmm. John, uh, John Doherty, who's a, who's a fascinating kind of character. Uh, he was based mainly in the like, England. He was a Dundagall kind of weaver. 
But they are speaking completely to that tradition that says that we need to address the, the social question in our trade union movement as well. Yeah. But then you have a much more conservative rule. And then after 1923, they are the ascendancy. And that's where you get your kind of corporatist trade union movement. Yeah. And in that's that what period, you have that, in that, the South. And that's really interesting period, that post-revolutionary period and the period of the counter-revolution, of course, because you, as you said, you have the, the, the biggest organized working class organization on the labor movement becoming corporatist very quickly towing the line very quickly and so you're kind of delving i suppose and looking for writers who weren't towing that line who were giving a different sort of analysis and the one that jumped there's a couple that jump at me here but i'll kick off with one because i know you're talking at our uh, political school next week on the island of initiative skullcoach clee on padder o'donnell um and padder o'donnell's uh, the, the one you chose is for or against the ranchers i know that speaks directly to that tradition of Irish agriculture as the basis of Irish capitalism in the early period. I know that you've written about that in your own book, uh, Sins of the Father. So to, how important is Padre O'Donnell in as a, as a kind of indigenous Marxist writer and how good is his analysis of, of that, that free state that emerged after the revolutionary period? I think he's, he's hugely important. Um, I think that his, his Marxism and his originality in his Marxist kind of thinking has been not only kind of downplayed, it's been completely kind of written out. Mm. Um, what you get, I think, again, I have this is a podcast, so I am simplifying, so please kind of bear with me. But what you tend to get, like I think, is that when O'Donnell's Marxism is brought up, it's seen as if he was just doing it as a kind of cuteurism, trying to convince the other working class into mainstream nationalism. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, this is an argument that's used any time deal of social question is brought up. Who in that right to Jason's mind is going to use Marxism as a Trojan horse mm-hmm. for some other ideas uh, ideas in, in 1930s Ireland? It's absolute bollocks. He said that he read from the capital when he was working as a teacher during the revolutionary period. And I believe him because I can see that he has a, he has Taking kind of Marxist kind of thinking, that idea of what are the actual on the ground relations of production, what's the actual mm-hmm. mode of production at play here? And what he says is that this is not a British kind of model, this is a, a kind of colonial model. There are different classes here, there, there are different relations here, and they are nuanced and they manifest themselves through the cattle system. And the ranting kind of system. And does he point to the comprador class in post-revolutionary Ireland? He doesn't use that word, but no, that's no. what he talks about. Yeah. Absolutely. Front and centre. He said, because after 1923, it is completely clear the class that currently warned us about said that watch these people. Um we can now see them. Mm-hmm. But like even at this time, um, like the 1932 general election is a very interesting one because it's completely class-based. It's Fianna Fáil saying that we're for we're against ranchers and bankers, and we're for workers and like small farmers. Now, of course, that doesn't play out kind of that way. Mm-hmm. They do build houses and so forth, but they're speaking to that because there's a very strong class consciousness in in agricultural kind of Ireland, and um, based on the relations of the production, which are capitalist and um, powder. O'Donnell, in his own kind of folksy way, he mm-hmm. uses his very kind of folksy kind of language, talks to this. I, I do mean, like that about his writing. Yeah, really yeah. It. Because, like, you know, because, like, he was a street kind of orator. Like, mm-hmm. it's, um, for a different project, I've gone back 
Um, well, actually, for this, I've been reading Lenin's Decondevelopment of a Capitalism in Russia. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to compare and contrast Lenin's style with Connolly's style. When, about, when they are essentially writing the same book, what are the actual relations of the production at play here? You could see that Lenin was not a street fighter. You can see that he was that he was an academic all mm-hmm. the way through because it's all about trying to prove arguments, same as Desmond Greaves does, through through consophatry mm-hmm. or like saying whatever. Well, this word means that, so fuck you. <laughs> Whereas Connolly, he learned his like Marxism from the books in praxis, in genuine praxis, absolute genuine mm-hmm. praxis. You hear academics driving fucking nuts. Talking about praxis, <laughs> Connolly was absolutely, and so was Pater O'Donnell. He's yeah. an intellectual, I hate that word or that phrase, organic. It's so patronizing. Mm-hmm. But he was intellectual, but he applied it through street action, same as Connolly, same as kind of James Connolly's. I think his writings are, are up there with kind of James Connolly in terms of that analysis of the Irish capitalist system. And he had a huge influence on Brian O'Neill. Well, I was going to jump into that point. For those interested, by the way, Connor is speaking as his editor this year next week at Skullcoast Clee, and that talk will be recorded as a podcast and put out on on, on Trademark Belfast on the Left Lock platform. So you'll you'll hear more about Connor's interpretation and Connor's analysis of the significance of and the joy, by the way, of reading Panama Donald's writings. That you know that really he's a great stylist. I think you just mentioned Brian O'Neill. It's fascinating. So you never heard of him. I was a member of the CPI for many years, um, and you sent me some stuff to read some of his writings. Um, and not only is the writing fucking really good, and not only is the analysis fucking sharp, but the the character himself fascinates me. I'm sorry about that, but because I asked you who was Brian O'Dean when you guys, I'm not entirely sure. I just fact come across him here in these early writings, but you've done a bit of research on it. So very briefly, tell me a bit about um, why his writing's good and why he's in this anthology. But a little bit about the geezer himself, because he was a bit of a it's a bit of an interesting backstory to Brian O'Neill, because it wasn't even his name, was it? But tell me about the writing first. Yeah, I mean um, his main. Book he wrote he 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 wrote two books one was on the Easter Rising, uh, and then the other his first one was on the War for the Land in Ireland and uh, this came from the kind of commentary they had asked they is had that kind of, book still available can it be got anywhere now was it no being, no and um, and I'm thinking of actually kind of of actually like you know kind of republishing it. Um, it's an interesting one because it's a, it's a diktat from Deacon Comintern, and they're saying that so he worked for Comintern. Did they, was he employed by so. Comintern? It know? seems that um, you know he did. Um, I've written a chapter in a book that's coming out next month um, on it's it's the Sayer is the it's fiftieth like anniversary, and I've written about the water land in Ireland in that. Oh, good, but. While I, was, while I was writing about it, I did some research into Brian O'Neill himself. And yeah, he's a fascinating Hiller character. Apparently, it seems that his real name was Francis Brennan Ward. And he was born in, uh, in Pennsylvania uh, in the early 1900s. Um, he, there were rumours that he was, he was trained in the common turn in the 1920s. But he shows up in Britain as, as Francis uh, as mm-hmm. Francis kind of uh, Brandon Ward um, in 1927, kind of 28, when the Daily Herald, I think it is, is raided because it had printed um, a letter from a soldier that was basically calling them for kind of for him to disobey kind of orders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and they were arrested. Uh, they were charged, and and you know, he was sentenced as well. After he was he was released, he seems he ends up in Ireland as kind of Brian O'Neill, and uh, he joins the, the IRA, and he's in. Uh, he's one of the kind of defenders of of a Conley house on Strand Street. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in in thirty two. But then he's expelled from the IRA in 1932 and 23 because he's a communist, mm-hmm. along with Wickham and all the others. But it seems that he was he was employed by the Comintern to work as like as kind of liaison for them and to help kind of build up the kind of communist party in Ireland. But he seems to have gone native when he got over here. <laughs> like he, but he goes full courts. He was too far up that river and. <laughs> And the influence of Padder O'Donnell on his book is massive. And you can right, see it. okay. And Padder O'Donnell wrote the intro and says in it, a, you know, probably kind of half kind of tongue-in-cheek, he goes, this is a book I wish I had written. And I've got a feeling that he wrote part of it anyway. But like, um, so you have this kind of weird mix in that book where it's very much the commentary and Stalinist kind of line mixed with this wonderful indigenous Comprador anti-colonial you know, anti-colonial analysis that is happening in Ireland and is also happening in North China yeah. with Mao. Mao is also doing the, the, the same kind of analysis and saying this is kind of this is class who you who as nationalists we can make like Mao's arguing in the 1930s we can make kind of common cause against kind of Japan with the nationalist kind of Chinese. But you cannot trust those fucking compadors. You just you <laughs> cannot trust them. Landlords and the compadors, you cannot trust. And and the Cus- and the Cus- in Ireland, landlords and and the compadors. The compadors class still firmly with their feet under the table here. Connor, thanks very much. Look, we've taken ourselves right up from the 1760s to the 1930s to the post-revolutionary period to the counter-revolutionary period. And writings that again have been lost and have been rediscovered, particularly those writings of Brian O'Neill are linked back to Padder O'Donnell. Padder's linked, of course, to Connolly into the revolutionary period. So I'm really looking forward to the next uh, list that you're going to send me because we're only in the 1930s now. And, of course, we've got there's an awful lot happening after that in the 40s and 50s to take us right up to the start of the Troubles as well in the north. So um, come back and talk to us again, will you, about the next period, that modern period, if you like. And also, people, watch out because this Marxist anthology will at some point get published. And I'm assuming, Connor, that each of the articles you're including is going to have a little biography of the writers and a bit about them and a little bit of analysis as well, yeah? Very much so. Now, um, it'll be kind of radical and like Marxist kind of thinking because it is hard to call this stuff pre-1840 as, as kind of Marxist. Of course, yeah, yeah. No, we as get, we, yeah. Like, and that's not just down to kind of Marx himself, but even down to the analysis. Thompson, yes, look at a few others, but they are all speaking to the change in relations of production on the island. Which is a Marxist analysis, even if you don't use that so. term, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And we're all we're all bigging for a concrete analysis of a concrete situation. And we'll we'll leave it there. Thanks, folks, for listening to Conor McKay once again. Uh, we will have him back on, of course, because he's fascinating and I love talking to him. And until the next time, it's for That comrades was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slang of foil.